This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians' I Raise the Rates Immunization Initiative. National Influenza Vaccination Week is coming December 6th through 12th. Visit acponline.org forward slash AI to access free resources to raise adult immunization rates and protect your patient's health during flu season. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. Uh, Paul, you'll notice I was not interrupted there, which must mean that, unfortunately, Stuart could not record with us tonight, uh, which is a shame because on tonight's show, which we're calling Volvo Vaginitis for All Ages, we had a wonderful guest, Dr. Monica Christmas, who you'll hear all about in a second. And you'll also meet our great guest host. But first, Paul, tell them in general... Uh, what do we do on this show? And if you wouldn't remind them also telling them about our great CME partner. Sure. Well, I'll start off by telling you who we are and what we do. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I would like to remind you that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. And all you have to do is sign up for an account there. As we get started, I'm going to also introduce our amazing uh, guest host, Dr. Kate Grant, Renaissance woman and uh, writer of the script, who's going to tell us all about our amazing guests, a lot of amazings tonight, uh, and maybe go into a little bit of detail about what we talked about. Kate? Thanks, Paul. Um, I'm not sure I'd describe myself like that, but thank you. Um, so we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Christmas, uh, this evening. So she's an obstetrician gynecologist at the University of Chicago in the section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and a director of the menopause program. Um, so we asked her, um, you know, what we were going to call this episode, and she sort of had a subtitle of how to maintain a happy vagina and then said she was just kidding. But we are going to look at how to do- prevent, diagnose, and treat all causes of vulvo vaginitis. So we look at um, candida, bacterial vaginosis, um, and atrophic vaginitis, which is now called genitourinary syndrome of the menopause. And then we touch at the end on lichen sclerosis, which is one of those conditions that's often missed because we often don't ask about. All right. So without further ado, let's get to it. Okay. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start us off and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and maybe a hobby outside of medicine? Well, I'm from Chicago. Uh, My name is Monica Christmas. I am a gynecologist who loves all things fancy. I am an avid reader and a yoga enthusiast and um, a wannabe chef. Excellent. I'm sure Paul's going to have some follow-up questions from that. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. When you say wannabe chef, so actually... I'm going to ask a different question. In, in the bio that we have for you, I, I see wannabe artists. Is that accurate? Because if so, I would actually like both. to hear about that. <laughs> actually, it's both. So um, I love to cook and I love to cook for other people. Uh, so, um, you know, that's my, uh, I think if this doctor thing doesn't work out, maybe I will uh, head in that direction. You People are always happy when they're eating good food. 
The artist thing comes about because I love art. Now, I don't have really any artistic skills myself, but I know that I would be really good at it. So as soon as I get some free time, I'm going to take some classes and my, I envision myself retiring, living on somebody's beach, painting something lovely. Now, I kind of feel bad because I was basically bragging to you about how much art Kate pumps out on a daily basis. <laughs> So uh, I I did not real I did not pick up on that in your bio that you were an aspiring artist. So maybe maybe uh, you met the right person now. Kate can tell you how she's so prolific in that regard. I like your philosophy too because I have a guitar that is just gathering dust in my bedroom. That I feel like if I ever actually played it, I would probably be really good at it. But like I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, Kate, did you want to ask anything else of Monica before we move on to to the script here? I'm sure. Um, Monica, are you, are you reading any books at the moment? Or have you got a cookbook you can recommend? Well, I am actually, it's not a cookbook, but I'm actually reading uh, Cass right now by Isabel Wilkerson. And it's kind of uh, really appropriate in light of the American elections that are going to be happening tomorrow. She gives me, she's giving me a really good explanation because I was very dumbfounded at the last election outcome. <laughs> Um, my gut is still on the ground. I'm hoping that I'll be able to put it back in my abdomen after tomorrow. <laughs> um, but it's a pretty uh, uh, amazing um, uh, kind of a explanation that she gives about caste systems that relates it to the United States. Oh, fascinating. A reminder that today's sponsor is ACP's I Raise the Rates Initiative to Raise Adult Immunization Rates. With the added risk of COVID-19 this flu season, it's more important than ever to recommend that your patients get the flu vaccine, especially patients with underlying chronic conditions who are at high risk for severe flu and COVID infection. All physicians play a critical role in raising the rates. Research shows that patients who receive a strong recommendation from a physician are more likely to get vaccinated. Let's avoid a twindemic of COVID-19 and flu. Remember, National Influenza Vaccination Week is December 6th through the 12th. Visit ACP's Adult Immunization Hub at acponline.org forward slash AI to learn more about how you can raise the rates for your patients. Why don't we get on to the case? Because I know we have a lot of topics that we'd like to cover in a limited amount of time here. Kate, so would you like to start us off? Yep, sure. So um, I thought we would look at vulvovaginitis in women across the ages, so as they go through each decade of life. And our first lady is a patient from Cashlack. She is called Candy Thrushton. She's an 18-year-old student, and she comes to see you as her primary care physician. She's not sexually active yet. She takes no hormonal contraception or other medication, and she's otherwise fit and healthy. She's not currently menstruating, and her last menstrual period was two weeks ago. She has no previous history of urinary tract infection, but she complains of soreness down below. It stings when she passes urine and she's taken a look with her mirror and says it's all red. She's provided a midstream urine, which is negative for protein, nitrates, glucose and blood. And there's two plus of leukocytes. So it's basically a healthy lady with symptoms. But how do you approach this patient, Monica? You know, it's pretty simple, straightforward, especially in a patient that has never been sexually active. Um, I want to make her comfortable in the office. So I usually don't have to actually place a speculum at all. Um, if I feel that I do need a swab, I'll have the patient place it in the vagina themselves. But typically, I'll just look as an exam on the outer labia. Um, 
if we, if I can't uh, get a good picture from just having the labia spread, seeing discharge to be able to swab that, um, that's when I would have the patient swab internally. Uh, and then it's a matter of just doing um, a wet mount, um, seeing it sounds pretty classic for what she's describing as a yeast infection. Uh, and so checking a wet mount to see if any of the criteria are there. Which so, parts? Of, oh, go ahead, Paul. I, I think we're heading towards the same question. When you say this sort of sounds classic for a, a candidiasis, I guess I was going to ask. So oftentimes, I guess where I'm going with this is oftentimes in, in clinic, I will hear people try to make the diagnosis based solely on history. So I'm wondering, like bacterial vaginosis versus candidiasis. So I'm wondering what historical features point more towards one towards the other and how reliable are those features versus just doing the exam was the question that I had. Yeah, exactly. And um, one is the the irritation that she's experiencing, the the redness that she sees. Um, it's not stated in the history, so I would definitely ask her: Has she noticed any uh, discharge? Classically, for a yeast infection, they'll have a kind of a thick, often described as a cottage cheese-like discharge. Um, most times, will be white, but can have a yellow or greenish hue to it. Um, and so, and especially if there's any other risk factors, for example, had she recently been uh, taking an antibiotic or um, has she picked up uh, exercise or swimming class and has been kind of keeping the wet uh, exercise gear on longer than usual. So many of those things can be ascertained just by asking the, those questions. And I know the microbiome is now a, a huge topic in general. Can you talk a little bit about the vaginal microbiome as it might relate to this condition? So in um, reproductive age women, I, I, I hope and stop me if I'm not getting at what you were asking at. Mm -hmm. um, but so in reproductive age women, uh, the, the estrogen in particular that the ovaries are producing increases the production of glycogen. And those glycogen cells actually help to promote colonization of the vaginal epithelium with lactobacilli. Um, that lactobacillus will then create this acidic environment that's actually very protective um, and helps to prevent any overgrowth of any bad pathogens. Because normally there's some yeast, there's some um, gardnerella or bacterial vaginosis that normally lives in a healthy balance in the vaginal area. And it's only when you get an overgrowth of these things that problems start to occur. Thank you. So for this patient, would you, you, you kind of mentioned what you would do. You would do, you said you would do a, they could self-swab if you, if you couldn't make the diagnosis just based on inspection or if you couldn't easily get a sample yourself, they would self-swab. You would do a, you do a wet mount. You do like a gram stain with that, or you do KOH prep? A KOH prep. Um, and then also if you're trying to rule out um, bacterial vaginosis, you could also do at the same time a prep with uh, saline as well. Uh, if you don't have the capability in the office setting to do that or the time to stop and do a wet mount, you can also send off for a um, PCR. A specimen test that has actually about 93% specificity, and I think it's 97% sensitivity. Um, it will take a couple of hours usually to get those results back if you don't run it in the office, but it's, as I said, pretty specific and sensitive. I don't, I don't know that I've ever ordered that before. Paul, have you? Nope, not once, I don't think. <laughs> so the patient, so in theory, uh, you could have this patient self-swab you send it for PCR and you're looking for candida species and you can make the diagnosis and, and treat them? Yes. Okay. So 
what what's your first line for treatment and how do you talk to patients about this? Like how might let's say that she's let's say that she says she is a swimmer, she's not uh she's not changing clothes promptly, and how might you counsel this patient about treatment and about preventing recurrence? So one of the first things that I'll talk to patients about too, are, are, are they cleaning the vagina with a uh, soap? Because oftentimes that often is a culprit. Uh, and so I usually let them know that the vagina is a self-cleaning organism. You really don't need to use any soap or any of those feminine hygiene washes that are so popular uh, and that water is just fine. And so in, in her particular place, if, like you said, if she's a swimmer, I'd also recommend bringing a, a change of clothing to the, the gym with her to the pool and, and taking the wet clothing off as soon as possible, because that can help to, to prevent recurrence too. So what you're saying, and, and as far as the soap goes, you're saying soap is just upsetting the natural balance. And so that is not something that should be done. Okay. And then what about, I know patients, anytime patients have like any sort of complaint like this, they're worried about like, could they be getting this from their partner? How do you have that conversation with this, with this young woman? Uh, yeah. So, well, in this particular young woman, I think we said that she wasn't sexually active, but in somebody that was sexually active, if we've proven that it's just a yeast infection and the additional STD workup was negative, uh, typically if we don't normally treat a partner for um, a yeast infection. Usually it's just treating the patient. It really doesn't live on the outside of either you know, a vibrator, a toy, or on the outside of the penis. One of the caveats, though, is if you have a male partner that has not been circumcised, they actually might need to be treated, especially if the the um, female patient is con- continuing to have recurrences of yeast infection, because sometimes the yeast can kind of uh, harbor underneath that foreskin. Um, in a circumcised partner, though, that's usually not the case. Someone's on an SGLT2 inhibitor, Paul, probably, right? Uh, <laughs> we they tied it all together. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, Paul, do you want to read the second part of the case here? Sure. So Candy comes back to our office a year later. She now has a boyfriend, and she's now taking combined oral contraceptive pill, and she has not missed any doses. She's complaining of, of similar symptoms, so she again reports you know, soreness and itching down below, and it still burns when she passes urine. She reports a thick white discharge, and now she's concerned that she might have a sexually transmitted infection now that she is sexually active. So for Kenny coming back with similar symptoms, but her history has changed somewhat. Does this change anything in your approach to her? Well, more I think with her being sexually active now, I definitely would do a STD workup, something that I would not have done the, the first go around because she wasn't sexually active. Uh, in terms of um, the workup, that would probably be the only change, though, in the workup in terms of what we did before. And for treatment purposes, um, so I think maybe maybe we didn't get specific on the treatment last time. So can you say like this is this is a first recurrence? Uh, let's say the S- STI testing is negative. What sort of treatment might you give for the first? initial time and then for first recurrence. And I think we're going to talk about a little bit later people who have recurrence. Yeah. So uh, either a, a oral fluconazole, which is usually just a one-time dose. Um, in addition, uh, any of the intravaginal azoles would also be appropriate. And I think I would, usually I just base it on what patient preference is. Some patients prefer doing the oral pill because it's it's fast. It, it's, it's not messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
There are over-the-counter things that patients can buy too, so they don't actually have to, to come in if they prefer that, that option. Um, sometimes a downside, though, to the intravaginal over-the-counters is that they can have preservatives or things in it that can be irritating. And because she's already describing kind of a burning sensation to the labia, oftentimes if they use one of those intravaginal uh, methods, they can exacerbate the burning. So in that particular case, sometimes I lean more towards taking the oral pill if the patient is amenable to it. And I think as well, um, you know, a lot of patients will come to the office and they've already tried multiple things from over the counter and they mm -hmm. all think that every symptom is always thrush and they don't, don't really think about other things. So, you know, they can often have tried the treatment and had a treatment failure um, because they've not really understood what they need to do. Uh, and that, that can be quite a difficult one to unpick because they'll come every decade after that because their mother's told them that that was definitely thrush and then they might not need to treat at all and so on. I think we should talk a little bit about uh, recurrent cases and which patient um, if we think, if we're pretty sure someone has candidiasis and it's been recurrent, what does that make you think about? Uh, and and when when should we refer this person to you? Um, I imagine if someone has like a first recurrence a couple months later, that doesn't seem that out of the ordinary, especially if they have risk factors. But when when should we be referring? You know, typically we'll call it, say that if a patient has had more than three. Uh, infections. And that's the same for bacterial vaginosis that I think we're getting to next too. Mm -hmm. um, but if they have more than three infections in a year, um, oftentimes that that could be a reason to treat them with a suppression or extended regimen treatment. Mm -hmm. And so I was reading about that. Could that it seemed like that could be both either oral or fat, like uh, topical therapy can you talk about like what's a typical regimen there? If if candy comes back and it's now the fourth time in a year, what what might that look like? Yeah. So as we just discussed too, first I try to ascertain whether or not there were any risk factors, um, and it may be warranted too to to make if if we've already said that her other STD testing was negative, so that's a good thing. Um, but might want to also check if she has any other risk factors for diabetes as well. Um, if all of those things are, are negative and we just really can't, which oftentimes we cannot come up with a reason why somebody's continuing to have um, recurrent yeast infections, then treating them, would, we would treat that acute infection. And then after that, it's usually typically the oral fluconazole weekly for up to 16 weeks. And sometimes people will do a, a variation of, of just six weeks and not do uh, as long a therapy, uh, just depending on the, the patient and what the results are that they get. Okay. What about patients when they ask you about complementary alternative therapies for this, boric acid, um, the intravaginal lactobacillus tablets, I think is something that exists, yogurt, how do you how do you handle that sort of thing? Yeah, so anecdotally, I actually think that boric acid uh, works very well. And the way that you they would use it is um, one suppository every night for two weeks. Um, and I've actually had patients that have had remarkable um, results from from that. Uh, in terms of lactobacillus, it seems that the, the science or the evidence supports using it for kind of gastrointestinal uh, issues, but the, the same benefit hasn't uh, lended itself to vaginal use. Okay. And so the, the data doesn't really support that right now. 
Um, I think the last thing you asked me about was other uh, using uh, garlic or. Uh, <laughs> yeah, garlic, yogurt. Uh, I think yeah. I've, I read tea tree oil, vinegar. There's a whole bunch of things people have tried. It's a bit scary, I think. It <laughs> is. And, and again, I will say anecdotally, I find that those things are more irritating than helpful. Okay. Um, and they often don't smell very good either. So <laughs> <laughs> I usually try to as holistic as I a holistic approach I embrace, but those usually I try to steer uh, patients away from. Yeah, probably if you tell the patients might worsen irritation, smells bad. Probably that's probably what they're trying to alleviate. So I think uh, yeah, maybe you might get some buy in there. Yeah. You'd be surprised though, at how many people have already tried all of those things yeah. um, before they come in. And, <laughs> and, and so they're usually willing to give them up because they've already experienced what I've said. So it's not usually a surprise when I say, it doesn't smell so good, right? Yeah. They're probably relieved that you told them that that's yeah, not what they, they need can to stop do. It. <laughs> the, the boric acid regimen, the two week that you referred to, is that for recurrence or is that for just an initial episode or, or like a single recurrence? You know, I, I actually, it's, it's for me, and, and again, this is kind of more of a, a personal uh, preference is that I usually don't suggest it until somebody has failed more traditional therapy and I don't have a, a good reason that they failed it. And I'll say, hey, we can either try an extended dose regimen treatment for several weeks um, as an alternative option too, this is an old school treatment boric acid, we could try this. And so um, there, I find here in the United States, that, especially in Chicagoland area, that there's not many pharmacies now that actually have boric acid. Um, in fact, I only have like two pharmacies that I can send patients to that will compound them. Um, but you can't order them on Amazon. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can, yep, on Amazon. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's, it actually is a little embarrassing at times because ah. especially if a patient is very frustrated from having been treated with things that have failed, they go to Amazon and there'll be like 7,000 reviews oh. of oh, people boy. raving about ah. boric acid suppository and have nothing else ever worked in these you know, money hungry doctors are prescribing these <laughs> prescriptions. Oh, oh and all I had to do was go get boric acid. So <laughs> I, I was just telling Kate and Paul and the rest of our team that I was I was checking our, our YouTube. We we post videos there once in a while and uh the herpes episode that Kate had worked on a little over a year ago, the comments was just filled with spam of all these, what I imagine are fake patients saying, Dr. So-and-so right. cured my genital herpes with herbal remedies. And it was just, I'm like, this rabbit hole must go so deep. Like there, we had like a hundred comments that we had to just remove from. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <Right. laughs> um, well, with that non sequitur, I think we should probably move on to the next case, which. Uh, no, I'm just so relieved. I have to say, cause I've heard so many bewildered conversations with pharmacies about boric acid, like they'll <laughs> order it and just kind of cross their fingers and grow their teeth and hope something happens. And then they'll get a call back and we'll have no idea how to tell them how to compound it or what to do about it. So oh, Amazon, Amazon is a great, yeah, that's a great, great resolution to that problem. Well, we we have this thing in um in all of our public toilets for ladies where you shut the door and normally there's an advert on the back of the door when you close it to read while you're sitting down and the number of petrol stations and service areas that have um but bacterial vaginosis ads on the back of the doors it, it just <laughs> <laughs> very targeted marketing yeah so. yeah yeah <laughs> captive audience 
Okay, let's get let's get on to the next case here. Uh, this is this is still Candy, but a new problem now. Okay, so she comes to see you a year later, and she didn't like the pill, and she now has a copper IUD. She's got an itchy, watery discharge, which makes her feel damp in her underwear for the last few weeks. She's got a new boyfriend, and he smells. It smells. He says it smells like fish when they have sex, and she's really upset. She's been washing multiple times per day. She's wearing scented panty liners. She's tried vaginal douches, changed her laundry detergent and body wash, and he tells her he thinks she's got an STD. So she's fairly bruised when she comes to visit you. So what, what do you say to her and what testing are you going to offer? Yeah, so that's a pretty classic uh, presentation there, even for bacterial vaginosis. But in terms of testing, very similar to what we did for her when she came in with the yeast infection symptoms. Uh, if you have the capability to do a wet mount in the office, it's a pretty simple thing to do to kind of swab the vaginal walls, place a little cotton swab and some uh, saline and look under the microscope and if you see more than 20% clue cells, that can be pretty, that can be diagnostic for bacterial vaginosis. In addition to having the, um, if you have KOH, kind of putting a little drop of that on the discharge as well. And if there is a uh, aiming uh, kind of a fishy smell that is produced from the, the discharge, uh, then that's another uh, uh, helpful diagnostic uh, clue too. Uh, as well as, so we said one that looking at a wet mount, seeing if you got the clue cells, uh, doing the KOH whiff test. Um, another is checking for pH because bacterial vaginosis usually will have a pH that's greater than 4.5. So if you've got nitrazine paper, you can just dip that in the discharge and typically it'll turn a bright blue. So you know, with kind of helping her too, because some of the things that she's doing uh, to help with the smell is probably exacerbating the bacterial vaginosis too. And so that's going to be a good opportunity to talk about some of the things that she's doing that might be self-sabotaging, like the douches and the body wash. And um, I can't name the other thing that you said, but it seemed like there were quite a few things that she was doing. I think it was scented help. panty liners. Scented yeah. panty liners. Yes. that There it is right there. So all of those things that she's doing to mask the smell actually is probably continuing to perpetuate the bacterial vaginosis. So we want to kind of stop all those things. And then also let her know that it's not, you know, considered a sexually transmitted disease and there's nothing that she has to feel embarrassed or ashamed about and that it, it's completely treatable. And we, I, we mentioned in our history that she has an IUD now. Is there an association between IUD use and, and bacterial vaginosis? She actually has the copper IUD. And so there has been some association with um, maybe an increased um, association with the, with the, the copper IUD, uh, not um, um, as much with, uh, well, with the progestin IUDs, the progesterone can oftentimes increase the discharge, but it not necessarily is a discharge that's consistent with bacterial vaginosis. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, Absolutely. One of the things too that it just made me think about with the last case, just going back with her on the pill, is that we didn't talk about the fact that sometimes a hormonal birth control pill can not only increase the risk of uh, yeast infections as what she previously came in for, um, but potentially even maybe some increased association based on just the hormones of bacterial vaginosis as well. Could you um, could you tell us um, how common it is in, uh, in 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 women in general? So how how common is bacterial vaginosis, and how common is recurrences? 
Bacterial vaginosis in reproductive age women is actually very common. I wish I specifically had a number for you. I don't want to make one up, but it is actually extremely common, mainly probably because there's so many things on the market now that that are so enticing because they seem like they'd be good for us. Um, so that that may that that actually may explain why. But but also too, there's a number of things that anything that can kind of throw off the natural hormonal balance in the vagin in the vagina can actually increase the the overgrowth of of the bacteria that or gardnerella that causes it so so could you go on then and say how, what can you say to candy about how she can treat this first episode which has been so distressing for her um what she says to her partner it does he need to be treated and again then go on to what she does if she gets it back again yeah, the, the um, evidence doesn't really show that treating uh, partners, unless it's a, um, you know, a, a, a same sex relationship and both partners are having this, the same symptoms, um, but treating a male partner hasn't been shown to be effective in, in decreasing the risk of recurrences. Um, there are lots of options for treatment of bacterial vaginosis. There, there are uh, uh, vaginal uh, creams that either are metronidazole or clindamycin, uh, and there are oral therapies as well. So oral clindamycin, but usually first line is, is oral, uh, one of the oral like metronidazole or tinidazole. Um, one of the things that I usually will remind patients, so especially with the oral azoles, is that um, you usually can't drink alcohol with them. Um, there's this theoretical uh, disulfram um, reaction. Um, and so sometimes that patients will say, oh, wait a minute, it's going to be the weekend. And I was planning on doing whatever. And so oftentimes they'll say, well, maybe give me the, the clindamycin cream instead, because I don't want to have to not drink for the several days that I'm going to be undergoing treatment. Paul, do you want to do you want to talk about our our, our <laughs> no. medical uh, our our Dr. Pow, our our expert who talked about that? Is that I'm trying to remember. Is that the one where they they very in a controlled setting got the college students drunk and then gave them metronidazole and actually yes. um, assessed them for the the adverse side effects? So I, I, it's it's a fun little study. So I, I think we after that episode, I think at least that the people on the show are sort of less worried about that as a potential adverse that we don't tell people to go to town. It's, I think, I think yeah. it's still a potential consideration. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. So we, the Dr. Powell, uh, he, he, he collects that kind of like thing that's, you know, t people are, that's been said forever that maybe it's being disproved. Cause I did notice every source that I looked at, uh, was saying that that was a potential thing, but I think, supposedly they're going to take it out of like some future IDSA guidelines, even mentioning that because it is, but it's probably a good idea for, you know, if they can, they can, they can not drink for, <laughs> right. if they're taking it's heavy probably a doses. Different discussion if you can't not drink for a weekend. I, yeah. I also think like patients, like if they're taking an antibiotic, they're going to blame any symptoms on it and they might need to be on that again. So it'd be better for them not to list that as like an allergy or intolerance uh, going forward. So, uh, let's talk about, um, you, you mentioned, uh, women who have sex with women, um, uh, with bacterial vaginosis, is that actually, that's been documented that, that it's, it's like a risk factor for recurrence. If both partners have it, then you should treat both partners. If both, right. If both partners are symptomatic and you yeah. diagnose BV. Now, if one partner has it, but the other doesn't, I don't think there's any indication to treat the other partner, but only if they both are symptomatic only and, if and both shown to have. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for this, we talked about recurrence with um, vulvovaginitis uh, or candidiasis. And 
can you tell us about uh, recurrence with bacterial vaginosis and how common is that? Is it is it treated similarly to candidiasis? Uh, yeah. So again, it's it's more than three infections in one year, mm-hmm. and um, the recommended uh, extended re- or extended treatment regimen is um, using vaginal um, metronidazole twice a week for 16 weeks. And that's after you've initially treated the infection. So you want to treat the infection and then you would do the extended regimen. All right. So anything else with this one case, uh, Kate, rather, uh, is there any, any other parts to this case? Um, for Candy, is she, do we treat her? She's, she's out of the woods now, or is she still, is poor, can we finally let poor Candy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, she comes back. There's more. We're not even done with her yet. That's the tragedy. Okay, Paul, bring us, bring us to it. <laughs> I, I think I spoke too soon for Miss Candy. <laughs> it, this, I mean, this is like a biblical punishment at this point, but Candy, <laughs> Candy comes back. So can't, we've aged her. She's now age 30. And the last 12 years, she's developed type 2 diabetes, and she is now pregnant and has gestational diabetes. And she's reporting to you thick white discharge. She's having a lot of vulvovaginal itching, and it's not responding to the topical clotrimazole cream, which she bought for herself. And so I'm wondering if now uh, the considerations for this patient's pregnancy change our treatment options and how if we would address this um, differently in any way. No, we'd, we'd still want to treat her. Um, in fact, uh, especially um, with the hormonal changes that happen early in pregnancy, uh, often, even in someone who's never had a yeast infection before, it might be their first one with these hormone pregnancy-related hormone changes. So we definitely should treat her. You know, there's um, some risk uh, with high dose, frequent high doses of fluconazole being associated with fetal malformations, but the dose that we would use to treat a yeast infection really that's not a, a concern. But certainly if a patient was concerned about that, we could just use uh, one of the vaginal therapies. But there's no reason not to treat her. Okay. So maybe, so we we give her that good news. We can treat her with oral fluconazole. It's a relatively low dose, should be safe for her and, and the fetus. And uh, hopefully this, that puts it to rest. I don't know, Kate, can we, is Candy off the hook finally? <laughs> Um, yeah, I think she is. Um, she's um, she's she's really happy now, and she's had her baby. The baby and she are fine, and uh, her gestational diabetes is gone, so she's very happy. But um, she has got an aunt. Oh boy! Okay, Kate. <laughs> it was back to you two years later. She's been attacked by a swarm of locusts. I did a great job. Then she's sending her family members to yeah. me now. I feel yeah, very yeah. good about myself. <laughs> so you're running this fabulous um, primary care and, and gynae service at Cashlack. So she's been talking to her aunt, Mrs. Whitey Tighty, and she comes to the office one day. Um, she's heard great things about your primary care service at Cashlack. So she's 53 years old. She married in later life. She's never had children and she's not been on oral contraceptive um she's menopausal and she reports painful sex for the last six months she's got slight postcoital bleeding her last menstrual period was six to twelve months ago she had previously normal pelvic ultrasound pregnancy test and urinalysis are normal she's up to date with her pap smear and she's hpv negative so she really doesn't have much history but she's got symptoms 
And I, you know, I often will see um, postmenopausal or peri and postmenopausal women that come in and they're uh, extremely frustrated because they've been treated multiple times, either for a yeast infection or bacterial vaginosis, and their their pain um, isn't getting better. And so, you know, they're always surprised when I say, well, it's probably because you never had one of those infections in the first place. Your symptoms are more seem to be more related to the lack of estrogen uh, in the vaginal tissue right now. Um, so it sounds, you know, her pain issues, especially uh, vaginal dryness, lack of lubrication with intercourse, the pain being worse with sex, sounds more likely to be related to vaginal atrophy or genital urinary syndrome of menopause. And so um, talking to her about treatment options for either giving her maybe estrogen therapy locally in the vaginal area or trying um, either vaginal moisturizer to lubricants to see if those things help before jumping to hormone therapy if she's reluctant to do that might be this is um, a, a, a type of woman that you know we will see interchangeably calling it you know, atrophic vaginitis vaginal atrophy and then this new term genital syndrome of the menopause so can you tell us a little bit of a definition about why we've now changed the, the wording around vaginal atrophy atrophic vaginitis yeah, a GSM or genital urinary syndrome of menopause actually came about because there were so many different terms that were being used. Um, and not only were there many terms being used, but there are so many symptoms that were included under the umbrella of, of atrophy. And it made it not only difficult for healthcare providers to kind of communicate with one another, but also in terms of research, it's very difficult to uh, compare and contrast treatments when um, your studies are looking at or assessing different different factors of uh, that could be related to vaginal atrophy or, or to decrease estrogen. Uh, so that that term came about. I think it was about 2014 when the North American Menopause Society um, uh, held a a conference to kind of come up with a a, a term that would would suffice. And so, uh, you know, what GSM looks at is not only the the signs and the but also symptoms, and they can include. Uh, physiological changes that happen actually to the vulva and the vagina related to absence of estrogen. Uh, there are urinary symptoms like increased urine, um, urinary frequency and urgency, frequent uh, recurrent urinary tract infections, um, as well as the sexual function issues that may happen, either pain with intercourse, postcoital bleeding, uh, decreased lubrication or moisture too. So that the GSM term really encompasses this entire constellation of symptoms that could be experienced by women. And so although it's like a, a, a single term that we're using now, do you think that that also indicates a single treatment? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Could never be that simple. It would be nice if it was, uh, you know, so really the first option, especially if a patient had, you know, we would look at the vaginal hygiene things. So this is also a patient population that might be cleaning really well with, uh, you know, whatever soap that they're using. And so 
you know, just kind of having those conversations about not using soap in the vaginal area, not using uh, douches or any of the powders or sprays that, that are on the market to help may be helpful. And then talking to them about using um, vaginal moisturizers and lubricants. And so the difference is that a moisturizer is something that you're going to use on a regular basis, much like a moisturizer that you use on your skin. If you put lotion on on Monday, but you don't put it on again until the following Monday, day, you're not going to get very much relief from it. So vaginal moisturizers are, are topical uh, agents that you want to use at least two to three times a week for maintenance, regardless of whether they're sexually active or not. A lubricant is going to be something that you apply either on the, the penis and the vagina or a toy before you have sex. Um, the silicone-based lubricants tend to... Um, last or be more therapeutic than water-based ones. Um, so, you know, we'll kind of talk about that with patients too. If a, if a patient is not getting um, significant relief from using those two kind of over-the-counter uh, options, then we start to talk about what are the prescription things. And so in terms of uh, hormone replacement therapy, uh, women will do, don't need to be on a systemic estrogen therapy, we really can just use local therapy. And that could either be a, a vaginal cream that you use, it could be a vaginal suppository, a vaginal pill, um, they're often they're vaginal rings that are my favorite, because you put the ring in the vagina, and you don't have to take it out to put another one in for three months. And oftentimes, that's more convenient for women, they don't feel it, their partner doesn't feel it. Um, and somebody that wants to avoid estrogen altogether, there is a newer uh, DHEA suppository on the market, which is a steroid that breaks down or metabolizes down to estrogen. Um, so that suppository would be an option. It has to be used daily, though. So a daily suppository becomes a little bit more cumbersome. Mm. Uh, and then there's also an oral serum, a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So it's not actually estrogen, but it acts like estrogen on the vaginal tissues. And that oral pill would be something that the patient would have to take daily, but has great results in terms of the vaginal symptoms that occur after menopause. How's the cost of that? Is that a barrier for your patients? Yeah. So unfortunately, um, especially with uh, Medicare, often many of those options are not on the formulary. And so they can be pretty expensive. Um, depending on what your insurance is and whether or not your insurance covers it, we'll kind of answer that question. But if it doesn't, uh, the latter ones that I described, like the oral CERM and the DHEA suppository, those can be more expensive, um, as well as that vaginal ring too. Okay. Are there any contraindications to the topical estrogen that we should be aware of before prescribing? Yeah, great question. One of the nice things about the topical estrogens is that it's really not um, a huge, really not much of it, I should say, systemically absorbed. Uh, so some of the considerations that you are a little weary about with systemic hormone replacement therapy, like increased risk of hypercoagulable uh, incidents like DVT or stroke, um, increased risk associated with breast cancer don't seem to have the same risk with the vaginal estrogen. In fact, even in some patients that have had a history of a hypercoagulable event, um, it might actually, I usually will make sure I check with their hematologist first though. Mm -hmm. um, but often, you know, if they fail other things, using a low dose of a vaginal estrogen um, is safe to use. 
do you do- I guess oh, oh sorry go ahead Matt. I was just going to ask how do you tell patients to dose that how frequently Yeah so the the cream the vaginal cream the pill and the suppository are very similar dosing where most times we will tell them initially to use uh, it every night for two weeks. And after the first two weeks, you can decrease to using it twice a week. And I usually kind of explain, it's like if you have a really dry sponge, you've got to saturate the sponge with water to get it back to its normal consistency. And once you're back to the normal consistency, then you only need a little bit of water to keep it there. Um, anecdotally, I'll say again, something my favorite word today is that I've found that, um, sometimes if I, especially in somebody that really has severe atrophy, having them use that vaginal cream or suppository or pill every night can be a little bit more irritating just because the vaginal tissue is soaking up that estrogen. And I've actually found that just starting out the gate with just having them use it twice a week is sufficient too. But, um, you know, but the, the real way to do it is to use it uh, for two weeks and then decrease the dose. Okay. And we, we're sort of, we're basing the, the treatment that we kind of jumped to, I think on a presumptive diagnosis. Do you mind talking us through sort of typical physical examination findings for this? Because I feel like this is not something that's on maybe everybody's radar. Yeah. So, you know, when she came in, she's got the, the you know, symptoms of, of uh, decreased lubrication, pain with intercourse. And I believe she had even some postcortal bleeding. So, yeah. you, you know, want to make sure that there isn't an infection. So same, same thing that we did with her niece candy before, you know, uh, exam, um, potentially doing a wet mount or doing one of those, those uh, uh, swabs, DNA swabs, um, if that's what your office does. Uh, but then also doing a, you know, in, in terms of the physical exam, looking for um, any other maybe dermatologic things that might happen or more common in that age group too. And, if, and, and also evaluating for sexually transmitted diseases as well. And so once we've excluded all those things, and it truly does seem that it is vaginally, vaginal atrophy related, then we talk about those other, those other treatment options. Could you also um, talk about what it actually looks like when you're looking at somebody in the sort of um, pelvic area and on speculum? What can you see if there's vaginal atrophy? Yeah, so um, one of the first things is is uh, noticing kind of a pallor, just a hypopigmentation sometimes to the to the the vulval area, um, as well as erythema too. You can see um, oftentimes there's regression of the labia minora there can be a thinning of the vaginal mucosa as well so that the tissue themselves look a lot more delicate or friable in some cases. You know, there may even be some fissures or petechiae that, that are noted as well. And I was going to ask... I was going to... Sorry, Paul. I was going to put a link to this. We've got some. Um, we've got some images that we can put in the show notes about what um, atrophic um, appearance looks like as well, which might be helpful for folks yeah. if they don't get a chance to see it much. You know, the vaginal canal itself too, or some people will call it the vaginal barrel, can actually tighten and shrink as well. Um, the canal itself can shorten. So, you know, there, there are a whole host of uh, physiologic changes that happen with decreased um, estrogen or absence of estrogen rather. So I just want to ask, and we're kind of going out of order here, if you give me a sense mm-hmm. of just how common this is actually, like, is this, I, I just feel like this is one of those things that may not be volunteered necessarily. So I'm wondering if we should be asking specific questions. And I, and I also wonder how you might even frame those questions. 
Yeah. So, and, and probably I'm a little, uh, you know, I'm a little right. biased, I should say, because I, I see a, a large menopausal population, but um, most studies will show that that the prevalence of of women with symptoms of GSM will say is at least 40 to, and sometimes even higher, 60% of women will have symptoms. So I actually think that really all menopausal women should be asked about it. And if they say no, then you keep it moving. Right. Yeah. I wanted to move us on to a, a final part of this case. So Miss Whitey Tidy, she's now 68. She has persistent vulvovaginal itching. She's finding it impossible to have penetrative uh, sexual intercourse. She says it just feel things feel too tight. She's been persevering for the past few months. Recently, she actually looked at herself with a mirror. She thinks she saw an ulcer down there. She's tried over-the-counter treatments for thrush. Um, that didn't really help with the itch. She's already tried changing her personal and laundry washing products and um, she's using vaginal moisturizers. None of this really seems to be helping. So what what else might you think about in a, in a postmenopausal woman with some skin changes of the vulva? So especially in this particular woman having describing having an ulcerated area too. Uh, so, you know, if we've tried all these other things and she's come back, you know, I, I, I it's easy to do a vaginal biopsy. And sometimes that oftentimes will give you um, a diagnosis in particular of either lichen sclerosis or lichen chronicus um, that that is is missed because either people actually don't look or the patient themselves are embarrassed to talk about it. It's you know kind of hard to say, but um, in that particular scenario, that really raises a big red flag for me. And one of the th- you know not only is lichen sclerosis, a process that can really impact negatively a woman's quality of life, there actually is some risk of it progressing to a vulvar cancer as well. And so you want to make the diagnosis um, and and treat and it's treatable though too. So that's Mm -hmm. actually the most important thing too, is that it's treatable, but it's treated differently than how you would treat atrophic uh, vaginitis or vaginal atrophy. Uh, so it's usually treated with uh, high potent steroids, topical. Can you talk a little bit about like what is like a classic illness script for someone with lichen sclerosis, um, and like what you might see on exam? Yeah, uh, loss of or labial labial agglutination is one. Um, having a very uh, pale or parchment paper like uh, vaginal mucosa, somehow sometimes how it's described, and often it's in an hourglass distribution that kind of not only encompasses kind of the labial area above the clitoris, but also around the the anal area too. Uh, but very very thin, um, lots oftentimes excoriations, but very thin tissue with with loss with labial agglutination. And I was reading it can be associated with like multiple autoimmune disorders that you might ask about, or you might already know that the patient has them and that it's, it, it tends to be progressive. So can you talk a little bit more about like how you counsel patients about this and like, what's the treatment like? What's the prognosis? I, I will let them know that it, it's something that they're going to chronically have to deal with it. it um, although we can improve the symptoms, we can't um, eradicate it or get rid of it. So it's not treat, uh, com- it's treatable in terms of having symptom relief, but I don't have something that completely gets rid of it. And so usually it's high potent steroids. It, they use it twice a day, just a small amount. 
Because the other, I always explain to them, more is not better in this case because the <laughs> steroids actually can thin the tissue too. Right. But so just a small amount um, uh, in the area that that's irritated. And um, once, you know, we've gotten them back to a baseline where they're not symptomatic, then you can either step down to a less potent steroid that they use on a more regular basis, and then only go back to the higher potent one um, if they become symptomatic again. And usually what I'll say is just use it until you're not symptomatic anymore, usually about two or three days for most women, they'll say. And then you can go back to either doing nothing or using the low potency one. Awesome. Um, some women, especially, uh, and this holds true for even the women that it was the postmenopausal changes that, you know, over time, chronically with those changes to the vaginal tissue, with them thinning, the vaginal canal shrinking down, oftentimes pelvic floor physical therapy is, is warranted as well, just to help one, the women learn how to relax their pelvic floor muscles so that they can either, you know, have either use vaginal dilators or have penetration, some other way to help re-stretch those tissues out. And so in women that are saying, I feel better symptomatically, but I'm still not able to, to have intercourse or have any kind of penetrance in the vaginal area, those are women that are probably going to be um, very benefit from pelvic floor physical therapy to help with that. Ask them, um, do you have a, a go-to website that you would recommend for pelvic floor exercises? Or do you think they actually need to see a, a physical therapist about that for, for like hands-on advice and so on? If they're, you know, they're, if they're able to, I think it's actually beneficial for them to see a pelvic floor physical therapist for evaluation. Oftentimes women will think pelvic floor physical therapy is me doing Kegel exercises and I'm going to, you know, really strengthen that muscle floor. And that's actually great if they're, you know, urinary incontinence symptoms that you're helping to strengthen the floor with. But actually for these issues with vaginal atrophy or even lichen sclerosis, we actually don't necessarily need to strengthen the pelvic floor. It's actually more about pelvic floor relaxation. Um, and actually helping to kind of make the tissues a little bit more pliable and stretchy through various techniques. And those things are hard to do on your own with you just trying to read about it or looking at a YouTube video, although there are some videos that people can use and order dilators and such on their own. Woman Lab, just womanlab.org is actually a great resource in terms of just understanding what pelvic floor physical therapy is. There's actually a quick little video on there that um, two pelvic floor physical therapists um, are on that they talk about what it is. There are a couple of uh, blogs that have been written that um, uh, talk about what pelvic floor physical therapy is too. And I think that helps women become a little bit more comfortable with it because sometimes it's just the fear of, well, what is that? That sounds a little bit weird. I don't know if I'd be comfortable doing that. All right. So at this point, I'd like to ask you, do you have a few take-home points that you wanted to remind the audience about, about the, if they remember just a couple things that we talked about today, what would you have that be? Um, 
stop using or inquire, I guess, ask your patients about uh, what their cleaning practices are. Because I found that more times than not, it's things that the patient is doing that is creating the distress that they're having. And so sometimes that's a very easy fix of, you know, stopping them from the self-sabotage. My other, I think the the next one would be just in, in, postmenopausal women, um, they may not be as upfront about offering up what their symptoms are. um, But asking, um, Paul, you had asked, you know, should we be asking how prevalent is this? And it's actually really common. So I think women of a, you know, once they've gotten past menopause, at at least at an annual or physical visit that they come in, we should be asking them or screening them on some type of questionnaire. um, Are they having any of these, these symptoms? All right. right. Well, enjoy Schitt's Creek tonight, whatever you're going to be watching. Okay, right. I need something to calm, mindless. Yeah, no, you did a fantastic job. I can tell you that. Really great. Yeah. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Sure. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge, but to do that, we need your feedback. So you can email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Kate Grant and Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Our social media team is Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram. Tima Karganov does our website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. And also a reminder that we have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education and that most of our shows are available for free CME and mock credit for all healthcare professionals at thecurbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create your free account. Until next time, I have been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Kate Elizabeth Grant. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're presumably hearing in the background. Who put it there? Why, it would be Claire Morgan of Notterly, who does the amazing production for our episodes. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.